Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. Now, the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me once again this morning? Father, we pray that this morning every word that is spoken and sung would be to your glory and that the response of your people would magnify the worth of Jesus, their Lord. We thank you again in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, have you ever had a nagging question that just won't go away? I don't mean those kind of big questions like, you know, where did evil come from or things like that. I mean those silly questions that just bug you. Like, did Adam have a belly button? You know, those kind of questions. Uh, I don't know when the question first came to me or, or why it bugs me or why I even think about it. But I've wondered, how would Jesus open a Christmas present or a birthday present? A deeper question, would Jesus' parents even bother to wrap the birthday present or Christmas present? I know those questions don't earn me any points with the deep thinkers, but they bug me. You know, would Jesus be one of those shredders? You know, just let his joy overwhelm him and he just tears into it so there's nothing left but shrapnel of wrapping paper? Would he be just the one rip and it's opened kind of Christmas present opener? Or would he be the slow, methodical, you know, not the kind that tries to save the tape and the wrapping paper because that's just annoying, uh, but, you know, the slow, methodical that tries to enjoy the suspense and the surprise of the present? I've thought long about this. I don't know why. Uh, but based on Luke chapter 24... I think Jesus would be one of those patient, slow, methodical type of present openers. What does Luke 24 have to do with it? Nothing at all. Uh, not really. <laughs> uh, but Luke 24 is this wonderful revealing. Jesus revealing himself to these two disciples 
on the road to Emmaus. It's a fantastic story. It's a post-resurrection story. Two of Jesus' disciples were making their way from Jerusalem to Emmaus, a town about seven miles from Jerusalem. And as they were walking, Jesus joined them and said, Well, what are you talking about? What's your conversation about? And the two people said, You know, haven't you heard what just happened in Jerusalem? And Jesus said, Well, tell me what happened. And during this conversation, the the text, Luke 24, says that their eyes were kept from recognizing who Jesus was. And so they walked and they talked and the men recounted how they had hoped in this man, Jesus, to be the Messiah. And the high priests and the leaders of the Jews had handed him over to the Roman officials to be crucified. And then... This crazy story came that after he was crucified, some of the women had seen him alive and the tomb was empty. And Jesus says, you're so slow. So slow to comprehend, so slow to believe. And then he begins from the Old Testament to unfold slowly, methodically, how all these things pointed to himself. I would have loved to have walked on that road and overheard this conversation. Overheard Jesus teaching from the Old Testament how all these things pointed to himself. Where did he start? Well, probably in the beginning. He probably started talking about creation and how Adam and Eve were made to be image bearers, but how Christ the Messiah was the image He probably spoke about how Adam was meant to be in communion and in union with God and how in the person of Christ that union was consummated. He probably talked about how after the fall, God had promised that through Eve a seed would come and though that seed would be wounded, would crush, defeat Satan. Probably talked about Abraham. And the promises that God had made to Abraham, that through Abraham all the nations of the earth would be blessed, and said, it's in the Christ that all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And God promised Abraham that he would have multiple, multiple, innumerable descendants. And through faith, he does. He could have gone on and talked about the Exodus. And how Moses led an exodus out of slavery and out of bondage in Egypt. But how the Christ was going to come and lead a true exodus out of bondage to sin and death. He could have gone on and talked about the covenant at Sinai and the law and the priesthood and the tabernacle. He could have talked about David. He could have gone to Isaiah and talked about the suffering servant whose Wounds would bring healing. He could have talked about Jeremiah and the new covenant that would be sealed. I would have loved to have heard Jesus explain the Old Testament. Been fantastic. But their eyes were kept from seeing who he was, from recognizing him. Until they sat down to dinner. And it says, Jesus took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. And the gift was completely unwrapped. 
I can't imagine the experience of joy when the disciples who had walked for hours with him finally recognized who this was. And their hope that was dead is given new life. And they can hope again that this Christ, this Jesus is the Christ. This renewed joy. And they said, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked about the Old Testament and himself? I'm going to make a tremendous leap here. Stay with me. Like talking about how Jesus opened his Christmas presents wasn't a leap enough. Here we go. Big leap. We don't know who the author of Hebrews was. But maybe, just maybe, it was one of these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. I don't have any evidence to back that up. It's just speculation. But the book of Hebrews does exactly what Jesus did on the road to Emmaus. Goes back to the Old Testament and walks through all the institutions, all the elements of the Old Testament and says they were all leading to Christ. Isn't it just incredible to think maybe Maybe the author of Hebrews learned that firsthand from Jesus himself. Speculation. Uh, but the point of Hebrews and the point of Luke 24 is that all that God had been doing since the beginning was leading up to Christ. All the aspects of the old covenant were leading up to this new and incredible thing that God was doing in Christ who came to initiate a new and better covenant. Uh, This morning, as, as we're heading into a new year, I think it's good to take time and just reflect on what makes the new covenant so much better. And to think about how we ought to respond to that new relationship. The word covenant kind of can get to be a churchy word. We don't use it too much outside of the context of church. What, what is covenant? We do use it sometimes. When I went to Houghton College, I had to sign a, a student covenant saying, this is how I will act while I'm here at school. I, I won't dance was part of it. I don't know why, but I was glad to sign that part of it. Won't dance. We talk about marriage being a covenant. Even IU has a, a covenant with scholars. It's an agreement that defines the terms of a relationship. And Jesus comes and he offers a new and better covenant, a new and better relationship with new and better terms. Well, what makes it better? And here I want to turn to Hebrews 8, the passage that was was read by Joshua. The whole book of Hebrews explains what makes it better, but here in Hebrews 8, the author of Hebrews, who maybe was one of those men on the road, points to four aspects of the new covenant that makes it so much better than the old. First, Jesus is a better priest. Uh, Last year when I, I coached, I went in and met with the divers before I actually started and let them know I'm, I'm your new coach. And they immediately began to pepper me with, with questions. 
They knew I was the new coach, but was I a better coach or was I a good coach at all? What made me good, qualified to coach? They asked me what dives I could do, how I placed in big meets, things like that. I said, you know what? Forget that. I'm here. That's all you need to know. (laughs) What makes Jesus a better priest? Well, the author of Hebrew tells us he's not just better. He's perfect. In Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1, he says, We have such a high priest. That word such refers back to the previous verse where it talks about a perfect priest. Jesus is the perfect priest for us. Now when we think in terms of perfection, we normally think in terms of sinlessness. And that was certainly one aspect of Christ's perfection. He was the sinless perfect priest. Other priests, before they would minister in the temple, had to offer sacrifices for themselves to cover their own sins. They were not perfect. But Jesus comes as the perfect priest, the sinless priest to minister for us. But his perfection goes beyond his sinlessness. He was the perfect priest for us. Because he's the perfect man. He was made to be like us in every aspect. So that he could be a sympathetic priest. Knowing human frailty and human weakness and pain. He can sympathize with us as our priest. But he's also made perfect in obedience. Not only did he avoid doing sin, he was perfect in his obedience, doing everything his father willed. And he was the perfect and complete man. But alongside his humanity, this is deity. He was perfect man and perfect God. Because he is God, he can minister to us perfectly because he is man he can represent us to god perfectly he is the perfect priest who sits at the right hand of god in the earthly temple the priests didn't sit there was no benches or chairs in the sanctuary but christ sits signifying that his work is done it's complete And he sits at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Jesus is a better priest. And he offers a better sacrifice. Verse 3 says that every priest has to have something to offer. In the Old Testament, their offerings ranged from doves to sheep and goats to bulls. But Jesus comes and he offers a better sacrifice. Hebrews says he offers himself. He offers his blood to atone for sin. The sacrifice of bulls and goats and doves, well, it was valuable, but what Jesus offers is of infinite value. And so his sacrifice is a once for all sacrifice. It's a better sacrifice. And he ministers in a better temple. The earthly temple was a mere replica, a mere copy of the heavenly temple, made with human hands. It was built to exacting detail, 
Why? Because it was meant to mirror the heavenly temple, the heavenly sanctuary. But the earthly temple, as glorious and elaborate as it was, was only a copy. And Jesus ministers in the real court. There's this incredible irony that the author of Hebrews highlights in verse 4. He says, if Jesus was a priest, well, he couldn't have been a priest in the earthly temple. He wasn't from the line of Aaron. And according to the law, only those from the line of Aaron could minister in the earthly temple. But Jesus doesn't minister in the earthly temple. He ministers in the real thing, the heavenly temple. Jesus is a better priest who offers a better sacrifice and ministers in a better temple. But he also seals better promises for his people. Verse 6 says that this covenant that he offers is founded on better promises. And then verses 8 through 13 detail what those promises are. Starting in verse 8, it says, But God found fault with the people and said, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. And I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. From these few verses, you see three great promises. First is the power of the Holy Spirit that would be transformative in the life of God's people. Verse 8 says that God would write the law on his, on his people's hearts and minds. This is parallel to what the prophets would say. Ezekiel would say, I'm going to take the heart of stone out of my people and give them a new heart, a heart of flesh, and it will cause my spirit to dwell in their heart. And Jeremiah parallels that and says, I'm going to write the law on their hearts and on their minds. See, the, the law wasn't bad. The law wasn't bad, but it was powerless. The law was good. It revealed God's good will, His heart for holiness. It was a good guide to life. But it was powerless to produce righteousness. And God promises that someday the Spirit will come and indwell His people. And not only inscribe the law on their hearts, but make righteousness blossom. It will be the fruit of God's people. This new covenant comes with the promise that the Holy Spirit will inscribe righteousness on the heart and minds of God's people. But it also promises that the knowledge that is possible in the new covenant will surpass that that was ever possible in the old. Not only will God's knowledge 
spread beyond a select few who would mediate this knowledge. It would spread to all people. But it would be a deeper, more intimate knowledge. God will be known. They will know me in a relational, in a personal way. Because the Spirit is working. Because the Spirit is revealing. Because the Spirit is indwelling. And because God has more perfectly revealed Himself in Jesus. The power of the Spirit, a deeper knowledge of God, and real, lasting forgiveness of sins. In the Old Covenant, the sacrifices were this constant reminder of sin. Year in, year out. It was not a a simple, easy, sterile process to bring your sacrifice. It was messy, and it was complicated, and it was costly, and it was a constant reminder of sin. But in the New Covenant, the sins that were forgiven in an anticipatory kind of way, and on a forgiven on credit, if you will, are now forgiven permanently and really. Because the debt has been paid with a once for all sacrifice of Christ. Jesus comes and he's a better priest. Better sacrifice, better temple, better promises. So how? How do we respond to this what well, glorious new covenant? How do we respond to this? Moving ahead into the new year. How do we live in light of the truth and the glory of this new covenant? Well, I think a few things emerge from this passage. First, we ought to grow in a love for the community of faith. Uh, That might not be a self-evident application of this passage, especially in our kind of individualistic culture where it's me and Jesus, me and God, we're in this relationship. But covenant was a communal concept. The new covenant, it is this mechanism through which you are saved. But it's not one that God made with you individually. He makes it with His people. You see that several places in those few verses I read. Again, verse 8, The time is coming where I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. The author of Hebrews is applying that to the church. I'll make a new covenant with, with my people. I think... We forget the communal nature of the covenant, the communal nature of faith far too frequently. Uh, even, Even as we gather around this table this morning, we're reminded with very corporate language about a corporate meal and a corporate celebration of a sacrifice that wasn't just for me, but was for God's people. We need to remember the corporate nature of our faith, and celebrate and grow to love the community of faith. There was a time in in college where I neglected that entirely. Heading into college, I had gone through my family, a really incredibly painful time in church. My dad was a pastor, and we had gone through this 
split in the church and my family had come under intense scrutiny and I checked out. I said, done. I don't need church. And for two years, I didn't don the doors, didn't, yeah, go into the doors of a church. Unless I was home and my parents made me. Still prayed, still read my Bible, still tried to do this God and me thing. But it's not meant to work like that. Those two years were the darkest years for me spiritually I have ever known. And God brought me back to the place where I understood I needed the church. And you do too. The people sitting to your right, the people sitting to your left, you need them. You need their faith. You need their encouragement. You need to hear their out-of-tune singing on Sunday mornings. You need them and they need you. The Christian faith is not an individualistic thing. It's a corporate thing. As God builds up His body. So love the community of faith. Love it. And grow to love righteousness. I I was going to say, learn to love the law. But I don't want us to love the law as an end in in and of itself. The law is a good guide to, to righteousness. And I think we ought to grow to love righteousness. We have this misunderstanding that in the New Covenant... The law has nothing to say to us anymore. But according to Jeremiah, part of the new covenant was that the law was going to be written on our hearts and on our minds. Still as a a guide to holiness, as a guide to God's heart and what He wants and righteousness. It's written on our hearts. It's shorthand for saying we ought to love it. We ought to love the ways of God. We ought to love the will of God. And the converse is true. We ought to grow to hate and despise our sin. If I love children, I hate child abuse. If I love justice, I hate injustice. If I love righteousness, I will hate my sin. Part of the new covenant is that righteousness wasn't just going to be a duty and an obligation. It was going to be something we desire, something we think about, something we ponder, something we delight in. So ask the Spirit to fan into flame that desire for holiness, that desire to be righteous and to keep from sin. We respond by loving the community of faith, by loving righteousness, and by persevering. By persevering. When Jesus encountered the, those disciples on the road to Emmaus, they were in danger of, well, turning their back on the faith that they had once had in Jesus. Even the way the discussion folds, you can see that. They said, we had hoped That he was going to be the Messiah. They put it in the past tense. It's something we had hoped at one point, but not anymore. They were in danger of of turning their back 
on their faith. The book of Hebrews is written to Christians in much similar position. In danger of, well, becoming complacent, of forgetting, of leaving the Christian faith, and going back to Judaism. The author of Hebrews says, the new covenant, it's so glorious. It's the final covenant. It's what everything has been anticipating. Don't leave it. Don't turn back. Persevere in holiness. Persevere in faith. Persevere in faithfulness. Because only those who persevere to the end in faith and faithfulness will experience the blessings, the eternal blessings of the new covenant. Persevere. This year, like every year, is going to be filled with lots of opportunities and lots of challenges. Sin will tempt, but with that challenge is the opportunity to grow in a love for righteousness, to grow in a habit of saying no to sin and yes to holiness. This year, your love for the community of faith is going to be tested like it has in every previous year. Commit. Commit to grow in a love for the community that you're in. And this year, like every year, you'll be tempted to quit or become complacent. Remember the glory of the relationship that Christ has opened up to you as your better priest. Persevere, grow in love, and grow in holiness. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for how you have revealed your Son to us, how you have revealed your, your will to us, And how you have revealed salvation to us. Father, we pray that you would find us faithful in in obedience, faithful in love, and faithful to the end. Father, we pray that your spirit would be working in us to make these things possible. In Jesus' precious name, amen.